Welcome to the Apostles Houston podcast, and thanks for listening. As a community following Jesus in Houston, we want to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the kinds of things Jesus did. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we invite you to join us for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. in Houston Heights. For more information, visit us online at ApostlesHouston.org. All right. Uh, Well, how are you guys doing? We are in the doldrums of summer. Um, Man, it was, uh, I was out at seven o'clock this morning uh, for about 30 seconds before I was drenched in sweat. And uh, that's just where we are. I looked at the forecast, I'm sure you have to, triple digit heat for like two straight weeks. It's been that way for almost a month. Uh, School is coming, but it's still not quite here. So we're kind of in this kind of in-between doldrums of summer, and I think we're all feeling that just a little bit. So uh, I want to encourage us this morning. Uh, My hope is, as we continue in this series called Encounters with Jesus, we're not just talking about encounters with Jesus that we see in the scriptures, but we're longing to encounter him ourselves. And so I pray that he'll meet us right where we are, uh, right where we are in uh, terms of our hearts and right where we are in terms of our calendar and the circumstances of our lives, and we know that he will. And so we want to be encouraged and blessed this morning. I want to invite you to open Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, there's verses I just read. We're going to look at that this morning, this encounter with Jesus and these two demon-possessed men. And as uh, we've been going through the series this summer, our questions kind of remain the same generally. What does this reveal to us about who Jesus is and why he's come and how does this help us understand who we are? And what it means to walk with this man, Jesus, our Lord and Savior. So um, as we begin, I just want to reference a historical event. So on June 4th, 1940, uh, with the German Nazi war machine threatening England, Winston Churchill gave uh, one of of many famous speeches. And in this speech, he said these uh, words. He said, we shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France, we shall fight on the seas and oceans, we shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air, we shall defend our island whatever the cost may be, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. Anybody ever heard those words before? Yeah. So powerful words. Um, What's interesting is four years later, those words became reality uh, in an event many of us are familiar with when the Allied forces launched the largest amphibious invasion in history along the beaches of northern France. If you've ever seen the the movie um, uh, Saving Private Ryan, uh, probably one of the most, from what I understand, historically kind of accurate depictions of what that was like. And I remember watching that again this summer uh, around this anniversary, and it's just unbelievable uh, what took place uh, on this, uh, this day in, um, in history when these uh, men stormed the beach. This invasion fleet was drawn from eight different navies, included over almost 7,000 vessels, nearly 160,000 men who landed on the beach that day, and it was ultimately a costly but uh, Allied victory, and it was really a turning point in the war in Europe. 
And I thought of that because um, what Churchill was forecasting, predicting, committing to, and what took place on the beaches of Normandy uh, was, uh, was an amphibious invasion. It was a, a launched attack against forces of darkness. And what we encounter here in Matthew 8, in some sense, is the same thing. Jesus and his disciples are launching an invasion. Uh, it's been an ongoing invasion, but we see it kind of highlighted here in some particular ways when he and his uh, disciples launch off from the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They enter into a boat. They pass through a storm. They arrive on a foreign shore. And while there's no uh, bunkers or bullets flying, it is nonetheless just as much an invasion. But this is a spiritual invasion. In fact, in a way, every move Jesus has made in his ministry, we can think of in terms of uh, being an act of invasion, uh, in terms of spiritual warfare. And Jesus knew that. He talked this way. He functioned this way. And that's because if we look at the scripture, and it's one of the reasons I want us to read, for example, all of chapter 9 in Isaiah, it gives us this really clear sense of the conflict that has emerged throughout human history. In Genesis to Revelation, the Bible consistently and unapologetically describes all of reality in some sense from Genesis 3 to the very end of time as a war zone. And the New Testament brings the nature of this conflict into sharp relief because the Jesus we encounter in the Gospels is, in some sense, he is a warrior king. He's the anointed one who has come not to fight human wars, but who wages spiritual battles against the evil forces of our world between light and darkness, as Isaiah described and as John described. Now, when we're confronted with this language in the Bible, I think, especially with our modern sensibilities, we get uncomfortable pretty quick. This language of warfare, this language of, um, of, of kind of instruments of war and invasion and spiritual battles make us a little bit uncomfortable. And I think understandably so, not without reason. So-called Christians and even I think well-meaning Christians and the church at times have abused this idea, this truth to their own ends, taking up arms and using violence in the name of Jesus. But that has nothing to do Nothing to do with the Jesus that we find in the scriptures. Nothing to do with the true Christ. And should have nothing to do with his church. But for Jesus, the enemy here has never been people. The enemy ultimately is what he described as spiritual enemies. This is a war fought not with conventional weapons, but with the radical, unconditional, and unrelenting love of God. Those are the weapons of war that Paul so beautifully describes in Ephesians 6. And it's a love so powerful and so transforming that it can and has and will overcome evil and overcome sin and overcome death. It is a love that motivated Jesus, our Savior and Redeemer, to secure victory over the enemies of humanity at the cross. And so the Apostle Paul said it again in Ephesians 6. Our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. One scholar, Paul Middleton, has said that we ought to understand when we enter into the world of the Bible, when we think in terms of spiritual terms, we ought to see reality as a cosmic war fought against a cosmic enemy 
with a cosmic outcome fought on a cosmic stage. And we tend not to think that way. Again, in our modern kind of frame of mind. But we're confronted with a a little bit of this in Matthew 8. And so I wanted to kind of set the stage a little bit with this kind of battle imagery, this warfare imagery, because I think we have to see this cosmic reality, this cosmic enemy, and this cosmic stage in order to understand specifically what's taking place here when Jesus encounters two men who are possessed by demons. And so let's look at Matthew chapter 8. And see, how do we get a glimpse of this cosmic battle playing out in the lives of these two men? And my hope is it will help us see this cosmic battle as it's playing out in our own lives um, today. So, beginning uh, with verse 28. When Jesus arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes. So, let me just stop there. Jesus and his disciples are making this amphibious assault along the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And what's happened is they've left the crowds behind. They've left uh, their people behind on the other side of the sea. And they've sailed through the storm. They've landed in basically what is hostile territory. You see, the region of the Gadarenes was Gentile territory. So he's crossed over. And so no self-respecting Jew would have ever gone there intentionally. In some sense, because the whole land is unclean. That's how they would have thought about it. It was a place where people worshipped other gods, other idols. And so even just a few years earlier, there had been a Roman legion that had slaughtered thousands of Jews in a nearby territory. And so just to give you a sense of the the, the instability and the hostility that's present here. And so here is a place where people didn't honor the Jewish purity laws. Here is a place where there are things like pigs running all over the place, which are unclean for the Jewish people. This is a place uh, to make things worse where they get off the boat and where are they? they? They literally step onto the ground and what do they see in front of them? A graveyard, right? Again, unclean, death. This is a land of death and dead bodies and uncleanness. And so what we're confronted with is this sense in which, man, just like those guys took that beach at Normandy, this is hostile territory that Jesus and his disciples have entered into. And I bet the disciples were freaking out (laughs) as they landed on these shores. And I wonder if they were asking themselves, what in the world are we doing here? Why are we here? What I love about the story is that none of that stopped Jesus. He didn't flinch. Jesus isn't afraid of even the deepest, darkest places is what I see here. What drives him is this fierce, unrelenting love for people. And sometimes I think we can feel like maybe we've entered into a dark place, a dark place like the Gadarenes, the land of death and the land of darkness and the land of hardship. And I know for me, at times in those places in my life, I've felt very far from God, far from hope. I've been in the dark country like many of you. Places where there's pain and there's shame and there's bitterness. Places where there's abuse and addiction. Places where we find ourselves wondering if there's any hope, if there's any way out. And the good news is that Jesus is not afraid to enter into those places in our lives. There's no place and no person that is off limits to him. No one that is too broken or too far from him. And so I think this is just in this simple verse is a a word of encouragement to us. No matter where we find ourselves, nothing you've done, nothing that's been done to you leaves you beyond the reach of Jesus, 
beyond his love, beyond his power to set you free. Or maybe there's someone in your life right now you can see is in this kind of dark place. They're stuck. They seem to be stuck. And they seem to be hostile even to the idea of church and faith and God. And you might think they'll never change. And I just want to encourage you, that's not true. That is not hopeless because no one, again, is beyond Jesus. And he's not giving up on them, and we shouldn't either. And so Jesus' little invasion force here, I think, is, is an encouragement in and of itself. It's entering into the darkness and the darkest places. And so they land on the beach that day, and this is what happens next. It says, two demon-possessed men come from the tombs and met him, and they were so violent, no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? These demons shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? All right, so again, just thinking about what's happening here. They've landed, there's, there's pigs, there's death, there's uncleanness, and then out of the graveyard comes these two men who are out of their minds and violent, so violent they have to be put outside the city to live among the tombs. And they come and they approach Jesus. And what we encounter here uh, is evil spirits. We're told that these are demons, and these are demons speaking through these men to Jesus. If you come before the appointed time, when all evil will be eradicated from reality. Is that, is it, are you here early, Jesus? Right? Because we didn't know you were coming. And so there's this kind of weird interaction. Now, this brings up a lot of questions for me, a lot of questions for us about What's taking place here? Uh, What's taking place in terms of how demons operate and how Jesus interacts with demons and how we should interact with demons? And I wish I had more time, more than I can possibly address in in one uh, sermon. So I just wanna highlight three things that I think this teaches us about evil. And I hope we'll continue to learn and understand more about the spiritual forces of evil and darkness because scripture talks about it a lot. But this is what I think we can take from this this morning, these three things. And the first thing is that in our world, evil is present. Evil is present. Our tendency as modern, enlightened Westerners is to read this kind of stuff as kind of myth or allegory. Uh, But again and again in the Gospels, Jesus talks about and encounters real evil spiritual beings. And so I just wanna say, if they are real to Jesus and Jesus is real to us, then they're real to us too. We can't parse these things out and take what we're comfortable with and leave the rest behind. C.S. Lewis once helpfully observed, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. I think Lewis is exactly right. And so I think a word for us that comes from this passage, again, as modern, enlightened Westerners, is evil is real. And we've got a lot of problems going on in our lives and in our culture because we don't believe that. Second thing I think we can see here is evil is personal. Evil is personal. Evil spirits in the Gospels and throughout Scripture are presented as personal spiritual agents possessing consciousness, intelligence, and willpower. 
They have the ability to influence and interact with the physical creation is not just some vague force at work in the universe. And you see this. They speak to Jesus. They have questions for Jesus. They've taken uh, up residence in these men and they're doing violent, harmful, hurtful things to their bodies and to others. And so evil is not just some kind of vague idea, which I think is if we, if we hold ideas of evil at all in our culture, I think we tend to lean in that direction. Well, it just, you know, evil's out there or the, the world has evil in it and we kind of keep it vague. But this is very personal, So I think that's important to notice. And then the third thing is evil is powerful. Evil is powerful. Simply this, these evil spirits have taken over these men's lives and they have done incalculable harm to them and to others through them. And that is the power of evil. And it's very real. So evil's present, it's personal, and it's powerful. Now Jesus is doing battle with real evil here and elsewhere in the Gospels. He sent his followers out to do battle with real evil as well. And he sends us out to do battle with evil as well, to do the things, as we say, to do the kinds of things that Jesus did. Now, that being said, not every sickness or affliction, uh, not every bad thing that takes place in our life is caused by a demon. Again, going back to Lewis's quote, we want to be careful not to fall off on either side. Sometimes our circumstances are simply the result of our own sin and rebellion against God or others' sin. But evil spirits are at work in our world. They bring confusion and division and suffering. And we see this in spades going on in the church right now. And if we believe uh, that we must contend for the people in our lives who are still living in a world full of evil and opposition that seeks to destroy them and seeks to keep them away from the shalom of God, then this should guide the way we live and think and pray, both for ourselves and for others. This should give our prayers a sense of urgency It should break our hearts and move us to loving action. When we see the evil at work in the world and the lives of those around us, it should move us to our knees. That is the posture of battle in this fight with evil. It is prayer. And it moved Jesus to action. And so what did Jesus do? What was his action here? Look at verse 30. Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. And so they came out and they went into the pigs and the whole herd rushed down a steep bank and into the lake and died in the water. So weird. This is so weird. Um, just so many questions kind of come up about what's taking place here. Why, why these pigs? Why they run into the water? What happens to the demons when the pigs die? I mean, there's just all these questions. I, and it's interesting, looking at all the commentaries, there's a lot of guesses. And that's what they are. Honestly, there's a lot of kind of guesses as to what, what exactly is going on here. Um, and, and I think there's some, there's some legitimate, you know, kind of ideas that are taking place here. And, and we could drill down on that. But To be honest, I don't really know that that is ultimately the point of what happens here with these pigs. Um, I think what happens here is that Jesus is making something really clear, visibly, that takes place spiritually. And what he's making very clear is that he has freed these men from the demons. They've gone out. They're not in the men anymore, and we know that because they're in these pigs. And what happens to the pigs? They die. That's what demons do. They kill. They destroy. 
So I, I think it's just, it's, it's very simple. And what's amazing to me is that Jesus really did this with one word. What did he say? Go. <laughs> he said, go. And that was it. It was over. Sometimes it's so beautiful and powerful to me, just the simplicity of Jesus' ability to heal and to deliver. Not a lot of showmanship. Not a lot of attention-grabbing kind of histrionics. It's just go. And they obey him because he is the Lord Jesus Christ. It made me think of Martin Luther's famous victory hymn, A Mighty Fortress. You guys know these lyrics? The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. And what's it say next? One little word shall fell him. Go. That's what Jesus is gonna say at the end of all things to Satan and the forces of darkness. Go. And they will be no more. The truth is, that Jesus has ultimate power over evil. The testimony of the cross and the resurrection is that Jesus defeated and disarmed the powers of darkness and death and sin. And here we get a foreshadowing of that. Jesus delivers these men from these, men from these evil spirits. And in Luke and Matthew's uh, account of this event, um, what we get is, uh, is to see some of the fruit of this, right? That, there's a life transformed. One of these men, uh, basically we're told, kind of goes and tells others what Jesus has done for him. We're, we're told that the whole city heard about Jesus. Now they reject Jesus, but they heard about him as a result of what's happened in these men's lives. In other words, there's kingdom fruit from God's mission against evil. And the truth is, I've never met anyone whose situation was ex- as extreme as these demon-possessed men. Maybe you have, maybe you have witnessed that. Um, This still takes place today. I firmly believe that. But what I can say is I have known the power of evil and the bondage of sin in my own life and in the life of those that I love. Ways that are much less dramatic than this, but just as destructive. Again, for us as kind of enlightened postmoderns, Satan and his demons, uh, I think they operate differently. And I think there's a reason for that. They operate differently these days. They don't have to show these kinds of cards to us to cause the same amount of chaos and destruction. It's the reality, that great line from from Kevin Spacey in Usual Suspects. Y'all know this movie? If you haven't, it's a phenomenal movie. But what he says in there is he says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Why would our spiritual enemy resort to extreme measures like this, demon-possessed men in graves, among graves, when much more subtle things will do? More subtle, again, but just as destructive. In other words, why make you deranged when an addiction will make you just as insane? Why make a public spectacle when feeding our narcissism and our consumerism over and over is just as destructive? Satan's no fool. He and his followers don't need to possess you necessarily to manipulate you and to distract you from the Lord Jesus Christ. He loves materialism. He loves naturalism. 
He loves skepticism. He has a whole bag of tricks that he loves to use. Now, this ought to give us serious pause because our tendency to think that there's no devil and no demons at work around us leaves us susceptible. We have a huge Achilles heel when it comes to this. Because the danger is, if we don't believe there is a devil or demons or darkness, then why would we work to resist them? Why would we look out for them? Why would we be vigilant in our battle against them? And if we don't contend with evil in our own prayer lives, why would we ever contend on behalf of others? As followers of Jesus, we are called to do just that. To follow Jesus is to follow him into this battle into this battle against the kingdom of darkness and evil. So I I just wanna encourage you um, to ask the Lord to help you see these things. I'm asking the Lord to help him, asking him to help me see these things in my own life, in my own reality, and to see with spiritual eyes and not just worldly, fleshly eyes. And, And just to encourage you, maybe practically, when there's things that come against you, and I think we, we do sense this at times. I don't think we always ascribe a spiritual dynamic to it. What I think, we, things come against us. Life is hard. There are difficulties. In particular, one thing I've realized is that I have gone through life, and because of my experiences and my personality and the choices I made in my own sin, I carry a lot of false beliefs around in my head, things that are not true that I tell myself that are contrary to Scripture, contrary to the Word of God, contrary to who God says He is and who I am. I carry these things around. And one of the things that Jesus has given me the authority to do is to pray against those lies, to call them lies and to call out in the name of Jesus and in the authority of Jesus that those lies would not come against me and that the enemy would not use them to manipulate me. And I can pray in the authority of Jesus. I can say, in the name of Jesus, I reject that lie. When you encounter generational sin, for example, in your family, and we all have it, when that happens, we can pray in the name of Jesus and the authority of Jesus, I break the legacy of sin and bondage in my family in his name. We can pray these prayers. When temptation comes up and you sense the presence of evil, I've sensed this before. Literally, I've I've physically felt the presence of evil before coming against me, and I've prayed against that evil. In the name of Jesus, I command you to leave. And that spirit has left. One word, right? We have been given that same one word, the word of the Lord that tells these demons to depart. You have that authority. You have that power. And so I want to encourage us to exercise that, to walk in that, not because we're so great, not because of any power we have, because of the name of Jesus, because what he's done on the cross and by the power of the resurrection, his spirit lives in you. And you can do this. Now, if that sounds radical (laughs) or weird to you, I get it. I I probably would have been in the similar boat at certain points in my life. That just sounds a little bit, you know, a, a, a little too Hollywood or a little too weird or a little too, you know, whatever. And... I just want to maybe take a step back and just think, if that sounds radical and weird to you, it is only as radical and weird as the Lord's Prayer. If you pray the Lord's Prayer, which we do around this table every week, if you never thought about how radical and crazy that prayer is, then maybe this is a chance to when we come to the table this morning. Because every Sunday when we pray pray this prayer, what do we say? Lead us not into temptation, but what? 
Deliver us from evil. If you don't think you're exercising the ministry of deliverance, (laughs) every time you pray the Lord's Prayer, you are walking in the ministry of deliverance. Deliver us from evil. Why? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. It's his power and glory, his kingdom. So we pray this over our lives. We pray this over our families. Pray this for our sake and for the sake of the world. This isn't just a personal battle. Remember, this is cosmic. And so the personal and the cosmic connect. There is nothing that is left untouched by evil. Every system, every institution, every aspect of society needs the shalom, the peace, the healing, the restoration of God in Christ Jesus. We need to pray like Jesus that God's kingdom would come here on earth as it is in heaven. We need to pray that Jesus would deliver us from our sinful broken hearts and from our sinful broken world and not be fooled into thinking the devil doesn't exist that demons are not at work, that evil isn't present in our everyday world and in our everyday worldly systems. Behind seemingly ordered lives and smiling kids and awesome Instagram accounts, behind all of that, I can promise you that without Jesus, there are people who are suffering in darkness. There are people all around us who have no hope against this evil and this darkness and their lives are under assault. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe that's how you feel right now. You are under assault from evil. And the Lord Jesus doesn't want us to suffer in far off lands in the shadows. He doesn't want us to suffer. He wants us to know that he is with us and for us and that we can call out to him. And so I encourage us to be bold to enter into the fray, to love the way Jesus loves, to call out to him on our behalf and on the behalf of others and share the good news of Christ with those who are living in the land of darkness. This isn't theoretical. It's not a spiritual metaphor. Jesus is literally waging war against evil and he is winning. He has won because of the cross and the resurrection and he sits at the right hand of the father and one day he will reign over all of creation, a new heavens and a new earth and evil will be no more and the spirit of Jesus will reign for eternity. And until then, he has given us hope, the hope of the gospel, the hope of this fight to bring healing and forgiveness and peace and joy, to bring his shalom. That's our mission, church. That's our call, all for his glory. Amen. 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 Thanks again for listening. We hope this resource has been helpful to you. If you have questions or are just looking for more information, you can check out our website at apostleshouston.org.